Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. A fascinating guest we have for you today. She's a broadcaster, journalist and the radio talk show host. Julia hartley Bro. welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much indeed. I hope I am fascinating. I'll do my best. Well, we'll find out very quickly, but there are many fascinating things to talk about. Just for disclosure for our viewers and listeners, we're recording this on the Thursday after the Tuesday on which the election happened in the US and the first day of lockdown here in England as well. Uh, Obviously, things are going to change by the hour, so we won't get into the nitty gritty of it. But let's talk about the US election first. It was a very unexpected result, no matter who wins the election, just in terms of how the vote broke down. And it seems to me that, you know, the pollsters got it wrong again, didn't they? Well, you say unexpected. I have to say every single guest I've had on my show for the last few months talking about the upcoming election, uh, I said, what about the shy Trump voter? And they all poo-pooed it. And everyone said, oh, no, no, no. Uh, that, the, the pollsters have dealt with that. They're not going to get it wrong like they did in 2016 with uh, Trump versus Hillary Clinton. And I just kept thinking, I've just got a funny feeling about this. I was watching everything that was going on with Black Lives Matters and there's running street battles and, and all of the ongoing insanity of diversity politics and trans this and trans that. And I just thought, I mean, I I spent a couple of years of my childhood in uh, living in America, in the Midwest. And and I've always had an interest in American politics. And and I just thought, I'm not sure this is going to be going down very well with the ordinary (laughs) American voter. In the same way that telling a load of British people, you're all nasty, horrible racists and the country's terrible and everyone's having a terrible time and we're all going to die. Um, I just don't think that's how most people think about their country and certainly not Brits and Americans who are very proud of their countries like like most uh, people of their, of their country. So I always thought that there was a very strong possibility that Trump could do it. Um, I didn't want him to do it. I'm not a Trump fan at all. If I was an American, I'd vote Democrat. No question at all. I'd, I'd struggle with Joe Biden, but I'd, I'd hold my nose and do it anyway. So I wasn't that surprised. Um if we had to put our money on it right now on Thursday afternoon, it's Joe Biden, isn't it? And if I'd had to put money on it before Election Day, I'd have said Joe Biden. But I would have been terrified out of my life uh, that I was going to lose that money. And when it looked like at one point in the early hours of Wednesday morning that Donald Trump was going to win, I have to say I was the least surprised person on the planet. And Julia, why is it that in particular the Liberals, they don't seem to be learning their lessons? It's time and time again. It's the election of Donald Trump, or it's Brexit, or it's Jeremy Corbyn losing to Theresa May, the loss of the Red Wall. Why are they not learning the lessons? They're not learning the lessons because they, they their view is, and we know this all the way along from Brexit in 2016 onwards, is that they fundamentally think that the voters are stupid. Everyone other than them, you know, God forbid, people who don't even have a university degree. We've had that snotty attitude uh, since the 23rd of June 2016, haven't we? Um, and and their, their view is that, they, you know, it's like Hillary Clinton and the deplorables who voted for Donald Trump. They, they despise ordinary people. They think they're not as good as they are. They think they're uneducated, idiot, racist, nasty people who 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 need to be told what to do and who need to be educated in, in what the right thing is to think. And when you start from that attitude, you're going to find it impossible to understand people's point of view. Now, I'm, I grew up on the, the liberal left. I'm constantly told I'm a right winger. I don't think I'm right wing. I think I'm right. 
<laughs> I mean, these liberals, I mean, these are the people that think someone is far right. I mean, they, I've had that people use that term about me. They think these people are far right because they think maybe it's not a good idea to have uh, hundreds of thousands of, of migrants uh, coming to the country and, and even illegal immigrants coming on boats across, you know, from France or, or from Mexico into America. Um, they think these are terribly, terribly extremist views when they're not, as we know. These are incredibly mainstream views. And I think the reason why the, you know, the liberal, liberal sort of wokeocracy in America and in Britain have so many similarities. They have the same attitude towards voters in that way, but they also, they don't get it. It's not how they think. They don't understand that people think that way. They don't know why they think that way. They they think it's impossible to comprehend why anyone would vote for Donald Trump or, or would vote for Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson. And, and that's because almost they don't want to listen to what those people are saying. And what those people are saying is, we don't want to be patronised by you lot anymore. We'd like to be free to live our own lives and make our own choices and run our own businesses and, and, and do what we want to do without you interfering nanny state in our in our lives. And that's just a message that the, the liberal left are just unprepared to hear. They've just put their fingers in their ears for four odd years and they're going to keep doing it. I don't think there's going to be a single Democrat who, who even when... Um, you know, Joe Biden is being inaugurated and Donald Trump is still shouting from the sidelines on Twitter about, <laughs> about how, uh, how he's been, you know, defrauded of a, a second term. Um, the fact that Donald Trump got three million more votes than he got in 2016, despite everything he has said and done and tweeted since 2016, not a single Democrat is going to learn that lesson and think, maybe we are not actually putting out a message that can reach middle America. And I think the Labour Party, exactly the same in the UK, they, they are going to lose election after election after election. And at no point are they going to say, maybe it's not them that's the problem. Maybe it's us. Julie, you know, one of the interesting points you bring up there is that there's been a, a sort of narrative that essentially the future is left in the sense that the demographics of the United States and the UK are changing in such a way that essentially it will become harder and harder for uh, right wing parties to win. One of the things we saw with this election is actually Donald Trump increased his vote share with everyone except white men, which seems to shatter that whole narrative. It's something we've been talking about on the show for quite some time. On the wall behind us, we've got pictures of our former guests, several people of color there who are very critical of woke politics, uh, the way that the left has, has shifted over the years. Do you think this election signifies a shift in that sort of narrative as well? Well, I mean, one would hope so. Again, I find it very, I think, I think very sinister uh, and and unpleasant that people will talk about, you know, the Latino vote, the African American vote, the even the women's vote. I, I, the idea that you should be voting because of, I don't know, having fallopian tubes or testicles, <laughs> or a particular shade of your skin, I think is really quite a bizarre idea. Mm. Um, and absolutely, it wasn't a surprise to me again that you know many African Americans, um, you know, evangelical Christians, um, very much more on the conservative right in terms of a lot of their values. Um, we're talking about uh, Latinos again, a Catholic, uh, very much on the conservative right. This notion that we've, the Democrats have got the you know the black and the uh, ethnic minority votes, they're theirs. They're theirs. They're theirs not because they're, they're the right representatives for them, but they're theirs by right. They own those votes. And the criticism they give of the of those who don't uh, uh, conform, the attacks on 
on women Republicans, uh, 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 Latino or black Republicans or gay Republicans are off the scale compared with those on, say, white male Republicans. And we see the same in uh, in the UK as well. I mean, there's uh, Margaret Thatcher not included. And I remember a Guardian list of um, the 100 most influential women. in (laughs) (laughs) We didn't include Margaret bloody Thatcher, the first female prime minister and regarded widely. I I didn't you know, I would I wouldn't have voted for her. I was she was far too right wing for me when am I in my teens and 20s but i mean the, the idea that she shouldn't be on that list in i don't know top three is absurd but she's just discounted because she's not a proper woman because she's on the right and we've had the same with Theresa may we've had the same with um ethnic minorities in the cabinet rishi sunak as chancellor Priti patel uh, uh and Sajid javid before him and, and Priti patel as home secretary well they don't count i mean they're i mean they've got darker skin but they're not really ethnic minorities because they've got the wrong political views and, and again it's it's an everyone left not getting it. You don't bloody own a vote because of the colour of someone's skin. And they're going to have to get used to that. But Julia, I don't think they're going to get used to that. And do you think there's going to be this attitude amongst the liberal left? Let's say Biden does win. We've solved the problem. Uh, we're never going to face it again. And we're all going to go back on as we used to be. Yeah, see, we got it right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, yes, there are an awful lot who who, uh, who are not going to, as I say, they're not going to get the real message there. Um, I mean, yet again, the, the, the Democrats have won the popular vote in the United States. Whatever happens in the, the final few states, the battleground states that are going to declare, they will have won the popular vote. Is it seven times out of the last eight elections? And, and, and not very often actually getting the White House as a result. But they are going to have to understand that you need to have a sort of coalition. You can't just win with, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast and and certain ethnic minorities or the young who largely don't go out and vote. You are going to need to bring along, you know, all those middle states uh, um, as well. And it's the, it's the attitude. It's not that sort of, oh, well, look, they're never going to vote for us. It's we don't care almost whether they vote for us or not. And that, I think, is a very strange attitude because um, that, that, you know, there are many millions more of those people, as we've seen in the in the, uh, the Rust Belt, you know, that they are now the deciders of the elections. We know how New York's going to vote and how California's going to vote. It, it's those uh, swing states where it really matters. Um, I, I, again, I just don't see the Democrats, once they're in office, realising what's gone wrong and bearing in mind, look, even Biden wins. And, and then, you know, maybe after a year or two, he uh, stands down through ill health. Kamala Harris is president. You've still got a lame duck presidency. The, the Republicans are going to keep control of the Senate. Um, they've got they've got huge control for decades ahead of the Supreme Court, a six to three conservative majority. Um it doesn't matter who's in the White House to a certain extent for quite a long time. The agenda's been set for decades ahead. And the Democrats, it's their fault. They did that. They they created Donald Trump in the same way that the, the left Tony Blair and, you know, Blairism, they created Nigel Farage and ultimately Boris Johnson's uh, premiership. You know, if they don't like it, well, they they should look at themselves in the mirror first. Yeah, they're very good, very good at that, aren't they? Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, were you keen to carry on with the election? Yeah, yeah, there was one thing that I really wanted to touch on. And for me, we always seem to, you know, never get into what this attitude actually is. And for me, it's contempt of white working class people. That's what it is. Yeah. 
That is it is. It's exactly it's exactly what it is, and it, it's funny because it, it seems to have wavered from the sort of the the sort of oh the the, the worker oh these fine the miners the you know how wonderful the factory workers and and, and being very sort of gung ho to now these ghastly ghastly people who who are you know they're, they're Neanderthals they they just drink beer and and mutter about immigrants in their working men's clubs. <laughs> I mean, the, the, this is actually the most the only sort of really working class people that that most of these sort of Islingtonite Labour people come across is their cab driver. You know, these people always go, "Oh, well, my cab driver today said." Is that literally the only person who hasn't got a law degree that you've spoken to this month? <laughs> it's really, really strange. A, a lot of them are just totally, it's just totally out of touch. But if you're going around despising a large amount of your electorate, you've got a problem. And I mean, and again, and I think it's on both sides of the Atlantic, this idea that, you know, that white working class men in particular have got this incredible, this magical privilege that they're born with, you know, mm-hmm. even on a housing estate, you know, in, 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 in you know, the east, in the east end of London or, or in the or in, in, in Middlesbrough or in Stoke-on-Trent, the idea that you are born with this innate privilege because you're a white man. Well, you know what? Tell that to them when they're down the uh, job centre. Tell that to them then when they've got two, you know, great DGCSEs uh, from the rubbish schools that they've gone to. I mean, it's an absolute load of nonsense. And if you don't understand your voters and you don't like your voters and you don't respect your voters, you can't really be surprised when they feel the same way back. Mm. It's such a good point because I think a lot of people respect someone who disagrees with them uh, honestly on on an issue of policy. But it's the contempt that we've seen over the last four years uh, that I think is the driving factor behind it. But let's move on a little bit, Julia. You mentioned uh, that a lot of people you feel uh, are not fans of the nanny state, are not fans of being told how to run their business, are not fans of being told how to live, where to go, what to do. Well... What I put it to you that we are now in a position where the government has gone quite beyond that. And they're now telling us not to run a business, not to go out, not to do this. It's an issue you've been hammering quite for some time now. So for people who haven't been watching your brilliant shows every morning, uh, what is your view of lockdown? I think it's insane. I think it's morally corrupt, insane madness. Um, and I, I think that the Conservative Party are going to rue the day that they did this. And, and again, that's another big lesson for the American election. On the day, on the exit polls, um, when voters were asked, what is it that most concerned them? Number one wasn't coronavirus. It wasn't the handling of the pandemic. It was the economy. It comes back to that Clinton line. It's the economy, stupid. Um, There is no need to have a lockdown for health reasons. Infection rates are, are, are not exponentially rising. I'm not saying it's not my opinion. I'm not an epidemiologist or a statistician, but I don't I'll follow quite a few who are actually uh, doing that and looking at the official data that's in the public domain. And it tells us quite clearly across loads of different formats that uh, the, the there is no big rise in infection rates in either the elderly or the young anymore. And sort of 2% increase uh, in the last week, just 2%. I mean, not, nothing like the sort of exponential rising, doubling every four days that we were seeing back in March that justified the first lockdown, which I absolutely did support. We had a new disease, didn't know what on earth was going on, didn't know what the death rate was. Absolutely terrifying. You know, let's just build up capacity, you know, flatten the curve and, and then we'll know where we are. Months and months later, of course, we know that actually infection rate went down two weeks before we went into lockdown. The death rate was going down before we went into lockdown. It wasn't really necessary. Um, Voluntary measures would have been uh, sufficient. uh, And as we've seen from Sweden as well. So 
going into a second lockdown when we are looking at normal seasonal increases in respiratory illnesses, 10%, less than 10% of beds in the NHS are currently being occupied by COVID patients. And most of those are not people who have, have got COVID and they're ill there in, in hospital because they have COVID. They have simply tested positive for COVID. COVID is now endemic in our hospitals. It's, most of the uh, infections now are happening in our hospitals, which is exactly what happened back in March as well. Um, so um, I think it's an insane policy. I think the cost to the economy uh, is going to be just off the scale. The numbers are just silly, silly. They're not telephone number numbers. They're, they're international, including the dialing code telephone mm -hmm. number. Um, but, but also, crucially, it, it, people have made this a battle about healthy wealth or lives versus livelihoods, as if someone losing a business that they've spent 20 years building up doesn't really matter, as if someone losing their job that they've done for 20, 30 years, or even a year, doesn't really matter. As if kids not getting a proper education, well, it's only a few months, doesn't really matter. This stuff matters. It matters to those individuals, to their families, to their children. People losing jobs often end up losing their homes. They end up losing their marriages. The children have to leave their schools because they have to move. Uh, we end up with higher rates of suicide, higher rates of ill health. The children's outcomes over their entire lives are hugely affected by this. Uh, we know people aren't getting treated for cancer. They're not getting treated for heart disease. Uh, we know that we've got uh, you know, tens and tens of thousands of patients in hospital, elderly people in their 70s, 80s and 90s with dementia who, who have no contact with their loved ones, with their families in person or unable to understand, you know, how to converse with them uh, on an iPad, as the government seems to suggest they can. I think this is an absolute disaster, uh, economically, health-wise, physically and mentally. And I think when history judges this and uh, when the public inquiry uh, judges this, um, I, I think heads will roll. I, I, think, I think this is borderline criminal what we are doing to our country and what we're doing so, to the British people. So, Julia, let me ask you then, because you're oh, an intelligent... Yeah. Sorry, is that... No, that's, <laughs> no, that's, that's, great, that's great, great. It's, great, it's, it's great. something uh, Francis and I have been talking about on this show for some time. But, um, you know, you're an intelligent woman. Between the two of us, we're probably about as intelligent mm -hmm. as you. So the three of us can see it. Uh, <laughs> why is it that the government, who I assume... I know some of the people who work in government. I imagine some of them are intelligent people. Why are they doing this? God. If I knew, and you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to sort of have you know the, the the mobile numbers for for most of the cabinet and can text them. I don't think they haven't been getting texts from me. <laughs> there are some, the likes of you know the Chancellor Rishi Sunak that that they absolutely do get it. He can read a spreadsheet. He knows what he's doing. He's looked at the numbers. He's looked at the data, and he can see that this isn't the right thing to be doing, not just for the economy, but but for the health of the, the nation as well, in terms of how many lives will be saved in the long run and which lives are going to be saved. Um, I think that Boris Johnson, I know we, we say he doesn't do detail. Um, I think he's clever enough and old enough and ugly enough to know that what he's doing isn't right. And certainly Sir Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty, uh, the chief uh, scientific advisor and chief medical officer of this country, or of England, certainly, they absolutely know. They absolutely 100% know what they're doing. Now, I watched that press conference on the Saturday night when we just had the last minute press conference, you know, hours and hours uh, after it was supposed to have happened, telling us that we were going to go into lockdown. I mean, I have to say, I watched it on the Sunday because I decided to drink through it uh, on the Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> to do. And I was bugging if I was going to have my Saturday night ruined by them as well as the rest of the next month. But um, watched it the next morning. It was really obvious to me that those two men felt very uncomfortable in what they were saying. And 
that 4,000 uh, deaths a day, again, they never say it's a prediction, do they? They always say, you know, it's a scenario. Well, if that's the one scenario you choose to use, then you, you're, you're choosing that deliberately and knowingly. Now, when Boris Johnson used that scenario, I mean, he's got Patrick Vallance and, and Ritty standing next to them, standing next to him, and the three of them together, um, the three sort of horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, you know, you're, you're assuming that, you know, if they don't go, oh, actually, that's wrong, Prime Minister, that they are they are validating what he's got to say. Now, we knew on Sunday that that 4,000 a day deaths, which which would have been, by the way, you know, four times the work we saw on our worst days in April, would have been a higher death toll per day than Brazil India or any other country that had a terrible death toll and didn't even have a lockdown. I mean, off the scale, ridiculous, nonsense, nonsense scenario. We knew that that had been debunked on mm. Sunday. No yeah. question at all. On the maths, it's not a question of opinion. On the maths, that was a three-week-old bit of data and it was looking at the scenarios with certain ridiculous assumptions in. And it had predicted that by that weekend, last weekend, we would have had a 1,000 deaths a day by then when we were having roughly 200. So we already knew it was wrong. And they had, since that had been published a few days earlier, they had actually already published a subsequent piece of data with a far, far lower, more realistic death toll. And yet Boris Johnson... Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance chose to use that information and the Prime Minister used it again in the House of Commons on Monday. Now, I don't think it's possible that they didn't know it was untrue. I don't think it is possible that they thought that was a valid number and that number was used to scare us. Why do they want to scare us? I think because they know that the actual numbers that are available, publicly available on Public Health England, NHS England, government websites, aren't scary at all. They are showing infection rates in around the country are going down. Where they're not going down, they are they are going up at a much, much slower rate. I mean, really, really slowing down. Many parts of the country that have been hardest hit, they are levelling off. Even in Liverpool, where the hardest, one of the most hardest hit areas, no question at all. The um the, the hospitalization, ICU, um, infection rates are all going down. So they, they must know this because I'm not an expert and I know this. Uh, and it's not because someone who works in a, in, a, in a hospital unit is telling me. The official national figures collated by the state tells us this. So something is going on. And, and, and I, for the life of me, I've never been a conspiracy theorist in my life, but for the life of me, I cannot work out what it is. Are you tired of using bulky old wallets that give you a bulge where you don't want it to be? If you are, Ridge wallets are an incredible solution. This is mine. Sleek. Look at the industrial look as well. It's great. You can have 12 cards in it and cash on the back with a clip or strap. They're incredible. We've got one for the whole team. Francis has one. I have one. We even got Anton one, but Anton's from Liverpool, so he flogged on the black market. Absolutely, he did. And it also gives you a lifetime guarantee, which means that you will probably, if you won't, only have one wallet for the rest of your life. The amazing thing about Ridge wallets, they are so confident in their product, and rightly so, that they will give you 45 days to test drive their product. That means you get the wallet, you use it, and if you don't like it, you can return it within 45 days. And because Ridge is such great guys, they're gonna give you 10% off and free worldwide shipping and returns. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, go to ridge.com forward slash trigger that's ridge.com forward slash trigger and use our code which it will not surprise you is also trigger 
But the problem, isn't it, as well, Julia, is that we've we've effectively got a one-party state because the Conservatives are putting forward this and Labour are backing them. Well, no, La- no, Labour aren't backing them. Labour, Labour want it to be sooner, harder, longer, deeper. There is no, <laughs> there is no lockdown that they don't, they don't want to pornography by <laughs> this nation. Right, but that's a real problem for democracy, isn't it? Because when you've got the, a lockdown about, well, it's just been unleashed, and what's happened to a lot of people, and you know they're going to lose their jobs, how their you know their health is going to be affected, mental health. It seems nobody's standing up for them. No, well, I'm going to have to say we at Talk Radio are, are trying very hard to do so, and we and what's interesting is all of our. Um, all of the presenters have sort of come to this conclusion completely separately. We've never had a meeting. We've never been told to say it. On the contrary, I think quite a lot of people are in charge of that. <laughs> Guys, can you rein it in a bit? But we are all so passionate about this because we, we're clever enough and sensible enough to look at the actual numbers. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a political editor for 10 years of a national newspaper. I, I know when I'm being lied to. <laughs> I know when I'm being lied to by a government minister or advisor. I really do. Um, I... I, I I mean, we've got Nigel Farage, the, the Brexit party. They've said they're going to relaunch as Reform UK, um, which is all very well, except, of course, we don't have um, you know, general election until 2024. Uh, got local elections. We assume they're not going to be cancelled again in 2021 in May. Uh, and they say they're going to stand in those. Now, that may focus a few minds when it comes to particularly the Conservatives who voted for this. But but certainly not not the Labour Party. They they love it. They think that that will just take uh, you know, take Tory votes. Um, this is the issue. Is it, it even the MPs I've spoken to on and off air who I say, look, why you know why are you voting for this lockdown? Why do you think there should be one? And they'll say, you hear it again and again. I do it with a heavy heart. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't be willing to vote for another one if on December the second. You know, they want to go into another one, another lockdown. I would not be willing to vote for that. But, you know, we're going to come out on December the 2nd to, into tier three, which is pretty much a lockdown to all intents and purposes. Um, and and, and they, they keep saying that, well, you know, it, I'm, I'm just not sure about things now. Well, I keep saying, well, let me send you, let me send you the information that you can then be sure about. And it's not some it's not some random on Twitter. Who's, who's sending me stuff? I'm talking about, you know, uh, conversations with uh, Professor Carl Hennigan, the professor of evidence-based medicine of Oxford University. Um, he's not a crank. He's one of the most eminent in his field. And he is tearing his hair out, um, not wanting to get involved in the politics, but sort of, can we just, he doesn't, I don't care what the policy is, but can it be based on the facts as opposed to spin? That's all he wants. And that's all I think we all want. It is what we want, Julia. But you mentioned uh, December the 2nd, which is formally when this lockdown is supposed to end. Uh, do you think there's any chance of it ending on December the 2nd at all? Well, the the legislation that was voted for by MPs, although not by 38 MPs who voted against it and 16 who abstained, heroes all, by the way, uh, history will judge them very kindly, um, the legislation automatically falls on that day. Um, that was the only way, I think, getting that through. It depends what's happening, doesn't it, with the R rate and with infection rates. We know there's a time lag in terms of deaths. If you are testing every single person who comes into hospital, and if you've got a uh, a PCR test for COVID, which is is so, um, it's just I'm trying to think of the correct word here, but it, it, so useless, frankly, that it will pick up um, the, the remains of a viral infection from six months ago. Um, 
when you're not even infectious at all, and it's certainly not causing you any illness, then I'm afraid, you know, we're, we're probably not going to see those death rates going down. Because right now, I mean, if I get, I, I had the I had the virus back in March, who knows, maybe I would test positive uh, in, in a PCR test for COVID right now. If I get hit by a bus uh, tomorrow, I go into hospital and while I'm being treated, they test me and I come up positive for COVID and I then die. I will be in those daily statistics a couple of days later as a COVID death. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that is how insane our, our, our statistics are right now. Um, so I'm, I'm not confident that the numbers are going to look sufficiently low by December the 2nd, that the government's going to feel they can they can you know, release us back into the wild. Mm. But Julia, sorry to interrupt. There is a problem of the public because I have people tweeting me all the time saying one death is too many. <laughs> no, it isn't, is it? One death isn't too many. The death of a 95-year-old who's been in a care home for two years and has been bedridden with dementia, who has had on-off respiratory diseases and got six other underlying conditions, dying of COVID uh, a couple of months earlier than they would, is tragic for their family. But the idea that we should shut down the country because of that is absurd. 1,700 people die every single day in this country. COVID ain't even in the top 10 killers, right? Even right now, while we've got apparently a COVID crisis and a second wave, we have got to get this in perspective. And I think the British public need a little bit of education about, um, you know, how many people die every single day where we don't have a pandemic. Julia, just very quickly on that point about the extension of the lockdown. Uh, I mean, I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth if I say that you believe the government have already been lying to us about the figures, right? So what's to stop them doing it again? What's the incentive for them not to lie to us again? I just don't see it. This this is the thing. I question what their incentive is right now. As I say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist Mm. at all. I'm I'm a cock-up theorist. The (laughs) thing of it is, very accurate representation, and yes, Prime Minister, very accurate representations of how things do work in, in, in government rather than big conspiracies behind the scenes, the Russians or, or whatever. Um, I, I think a lot of this is about, frankly, arse covering. Um, we are talking about, we've you know, had a higher per capita death rate than a lot of other countries. That's actually got very little to do with government policy and dates and kinds of lockdown. It's more to do with our demographics, uh, the, you know, the obesity, the ethnic minority population, big cities, having a major, you know, big hub airport like Heathrow, all of those other reasons are why that's probably happened. But I think there is a real feeling that the public inquiry is going to be very, very harsh in a, in a couple of years' time. And people are starting to cover their backs. And when you've got the likes of Keir Starmer and others saying, oh, all these people are dying, isn't this terrible, isn't this terrible? There is a rush to be seen to be doing something. Doesn't matter what it is, do something. Um, and I think the idea has been all along, we'll do a lockdown, we'll do another new set of measures. And then at the time when infection rates will be going down anyway, we will we'll come out and it'll look better and then we'll have Christmas because the prime minister knows full well there's not a chance in hell that he's going to be able to keep to lockdown or even the rule of six for most families on Christmas Day. I haven't met a single person who has the tiniest inkling of a plan to keep to keep to that rule. So we're going to have to be out of lockdown by Christmas Day and we're going to have to be out of rule of six at least for a few days over Christmas because you cannot have a law which you know, 60 odd million people break on one day because that makes the, the law look like the ass it really is. That's that's my only hope that we will come out of it. But the fact that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, only this morning has announced an extension of the furlough scheme um, to, to March, 
I mean, what do you need a furlough scheme to march for if, if, if we're coming back out on December the 2nd would be my first question. Do you have a business? Do you want to make the most of your business? Do you want to advertise online but don't know where to do it? Well, how about you advertise with Trigonometry? We have over 200,000 subscribers across the different platforms. We sometimes get up to 3 million views a month for our videos, and it's a great opportunity to showcase your product. So if you want your product or business to stand out amidst all the nonsense that is happening, drop us a line at marketing at triggerpod.co.uk. That's marketing at triggerpod.co.uk. And we will do our very best to help your product stand out. And when we say stand out, what we really mean is get cancelled. <laughs> and Julia, don't you think in a way that the, this entire coronavirus crisis is a sort of the new Brexit, isn't it? It's divided people. We've even got epithets being held. Covidiots, I think, is, is, is the term being used for people who are sceptical about lockdown. I thought the virus was meant to bring us together. And, and I have to say, I, I mean, I say I was ill with the virus. I caught the virus on the fourteenth. I know, I know which which event I caught it at. And I was ill by the by the sixteenth of March, so a week before we went into formal lockdown. And um, sick as a dog for three weeks. And um, I know it's not a hoax. I know it's real. Um, one of the things I kind of did hope, though, after all the divisions over Brexit and twenty nineteen, I mean, that was. That was worse than 2016 in terms of those divisions um, in terms of getting that through in the election and Jeremy Corbyn and the anti-Semitism. I mean, there was so much horrible stuff around. And I did think in March, you know what? There's one good thing that's going to come out of this. It's going to bring the country together. We, first, we've got a real problem and we can all unite about what the real problem is. Uh, and second, you know, we, we, you know, we're all in this together. You know, I, I love the announcements Rishi Sunak made about, you know, the help of the business, and the furlough scheme. And yet yeah, taxes are going to go sky high. But you know what? We are all in it together. And, and since then, it really doesn't. It's really, really has changed. And it doesn't feel like that at all. And, and it's fascinating, as you say, how much the d- dividing line actually an awful lot of it has come down uh, on very similar lines uh, to the Remain Leave debate. And I think a lot of that is down to two things. One, um, private sector v public sector. Um, and two, middle class uh, v working class. <laughs> if your experience of lockdown is uh, you get to keep your job or you're on 80% pay and furlough and you've got a nice home and a garden and your kids are at a half decent school where they provided lessons and you got to spend some lovely afternoons in the park over the summer probably not that worried about lockdowns if however you're in the private sector or you're living you know three kids and you in a in a block of flats uh in in the city with no outdoor space you're going to feel rather differently about it and i think the public sector private sector divide very much and, and working class middle class divide very much in evidence on brexit as well and and i and i think we are yeah we're back into that territory yet again and and do you think as well i i just find myself so worried about the economy and the long-term implications of it. We don't seem to be discussing it all that much and how we're... We should listen to my show. We discuss it every bloody day. (laughs) But but why is it? Why is it that your show is one of the few places that it's being discussed and it's not a bigger issue? Because a lot of people are going to come back after furlough and their jobs or even certain industries, dare I say, might not even exist anymore. 
the leisure industry, travel industry, tourism industry, uh, um, uh, pubs, restaurants, uh, film, theatre. I, I, I was doing a BBC show this morning, um, Politics Live, after my radio show, and and they were talking, everyone was talking about the furlough scheme and, oh, 80%, and wasn't that better than 67% for Tier 3 in terms of helping people on their wages? And, and I was sitting there thinking, are you, are you all insane? And I said, you know, most people can't live on 80% of their pay. They struggled through in the first lockdown. And by the way, they didn't have to have the heating on during that lockdown, did they? Because it was all lovely and sunny, wasn't it? And also, you know what? It's only for three weeks. And then it's only for like another three. And then another three. And it's only for a bit. But we'll all, we'll all cope. We're all in it together, all of that. But people, people, you know, they've used up their savings. They've, you know, the middle classes are like, well, we've all done very nicely out of it because we haven't spent so much on foreign holidays and we've barely gone out to a restaurant. So, frankly, we've got more money than we normally have. Well, bloody bully for you. But millions of people haven't. And there are millions of small business people. They they have worked for 20, 30 years to build up their businesses and they're just gone now. And offering people, um, uh, you know, 80 percent of their pay. And this is, by the way, only up to 30 grand. Well, OK, that's average earnings in this country. But if your mortgage and your outgoings are based on more than that, you're going to be in very, very tight financial circumstances very quickly. Uh, so the idea you can pay these people's wages and everything will be fine. And somehow at some point in December or in January or March, they'll just go back to their full time job. Well, we already know that's not what happens because it wasn't what happened after the, the first lockdown. People didn't go out, come out of lockdown and then just go straight back to the shops and straight back to the restaurants and the bars and back to work. The government was virtually begging people to get back to work. And that was in the summer. What are the chances of getting them to go back to work in the middle of winter, in the rain and the sleet and the cold? Um, you, you can put these jobs on furlough schemes as much as you want. The question is, is there a job at the end of it? And and. I, I spoke to the um, Paul Johnson, the director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies today, the very eminent, independent, respected uh, economics think tank. Um, and um, and I asked him, how bad would it be? How, how bad would the second lockdown be? Would it be better or worse? And he said, well, it won't be the worst thing that's happened ever. It won't be the worst thing that happened ever since the Black Death, which is what the first lockdown was but it may well be the second. And that was the cheeriest thing he could say. So all these, frankly, idiots, MPs and others, who think that it's just for a month, it's a circuit breaker. A, there isn't such a thing as a circuit breaker for a virus. All you do is push the deaths later. World Health Organization has been telling everyone that for months, but people only listen when they're saying something they want to hear. Um, so we won't have any lives saved more than we would otherwise. We'll just push those deaths a little bit further on. Um, but we will see millions of jobs and tens of thousands of businesses go under. I mean, if people like Marks and Spencers can't make a profit, John Lewis start laying off people, even Sainsbury's, they laid, the supermarkets, the one set of shops that have been open throughout all this, they've laid off three and a half thousand staff this morning. Now, if, if supermarkets are laying off staff, how on earth do we think other businesses are going to be able to keep going when they can't even open their doors? This is the thing that really bothers me about it, Julia, because I fit very squarely into the, your middle class identifier. I had, you know, the lockdown was very good for me. I spent more time with my wife, <laughs> lovely walks, all the rest of it, the government helping everybody. But I don't understand the lack of critical thinking on, on the part of our politicians and media, because as I look at it, it's good for me. But there's no question that paying people not to work for the best part of a year 
is not a good long-term strategy. It's just not going to work economically. Why aren't more people talking about this in that way? I just don't get it. I, I don't get it. I mean, and if I'm going to think, you know, bad thoughts about ascribe bad motives, I think that, well, I think the, the Tory party don't get it. And again, they're going to learn their lesson because I'm telling you in 2024, there are going to be very few people who are going to be thinking about and worrying about the fact that way back in 2020, someone they knew, dentists, um, nieces, grandmother, who'd been in a care home for two years, died a couple of months earlier than she otherwise would have of COVID. That that's that's going to be the level. Most people. I mean, I, I have I've had a friend who died of COVID or with COVID uh, 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 rather than of. Um, and and uh, and I know other people who have too. But but I'm I'm very much in a minority. Most people won't know anyone who's died of COVID or know anyone who knows anyone who's mm-hmm. died of COVID. We, we may actually put you know going on four years time, but they will know people who've lost their jobs. It may be them. It may be a family member. They'll have um, you know children. Uh, who are in their 20s, who still can't get a job since university. Uh, there'll be people who've lost their businesses. There will still be boarded up shops on the high street. They, you know, there'll be far less choice of, say, for instance, even just things like foreign holidays. The local pub will have closed and not reopened. They are going to see that and remember that and feel that. Now, Tories should probably know that right now because they're going to be the people who get blamed. None of the Labour MPs who voted for lockdown are going to get blamed because the Tories are the ones in power. For the Labour MPs, of course, it's not necessarily a bad thing. They don't get blamed for, for any of the COVID deaths. They mm. don't get blamed for any of the other deaths, people who don't get treated for cancer. Tories are responsible for the failures of the health service, not them. And they don't get held responsible for any of the unemployment and any of the businesses that have gone under, or indeed any of the taxes, which are inevitably going to go up. And not just for the top 5%. There ain't enough of them. They're going to go up for everybody across the board for decades and the Labour Party can happily vote for these measures and say oh, it should have been sooner it should have been longer it should have been harder it should have been whatever they can do that as much as they want and they don't have to have any there's no cost for them at all and they will be reaping the benefits of all the damage that is done so I do wonder sometimes that Keir Starmer who's a very intelligent man let's remember that actually he knows exactly what he's doing in calling for these uh, measures and it may not all be about a concern for life, and it may be more about a concern for the next general election. And it seems what we're talking about when we're talking about both the Conservative attitude to lockdown, but also the Labour attitude to lockdown, is that we're in a political crisis. Do you think we are? I think we've been in a political crisis for for, for a number of years, don't you? Um, mm-hmm. With all of this, um, I, my, I suppose we're not in a political crisis in one way, simply because right now the majority of the public, according to the polls, um, say that they support these measures. But but if you say to someone, everyone's dying and you're going to die and your grand's going to die and it's all awful, but don't worry, we'll pay people 80% of their wages to not work and it'll be fine in a few months. Will you vote for lockdown? Well, of course they will. <laughs> you know, well, well, why wouldn't you? It sounds, it sounds like a terrible situation could be averted and, and there's not much cost. Um, I think if people were given more of a nuanced argument about what, you know, what the reality is, of, of the decisions that are currently being made and what the costs are rather than just the benefits that like we might save a few 85-year-olds next week from, from dying of COVID. And I'm not being harsh, I'm just being realistic there. I think they would feel very, very differently. 
Well, on the government's own estimates, I mean, the, the, the government's own numbers project that the first lockdown may end up killing up to 200,000 people, which yeah. may oh, well... 20,000 excess deaths that are definitely non-COVID related, yeah. yeah. Right, but, but over the next few years, in terms of because cancer doesn't kill people immediately, the, their estimates are, the government's own figures are 200,000. Now, if this lockdown lasts as long as I think it's going to last, which is until the end of March, quite possibly, maybe there'll be a break for Christmas you end up probably killing way more people than you've saved. And the difference is, as you say, COVID is killing older people who may already have lots of other health issues, but you're trading saving their lives for a few months for a father of three in his 40s that doesn't get a cancer diagnosis. How does that make any sense? It's, it's insane. Well, but I've had people say to me, and again, not only every life matters. Well, yes, but you know, we do make choices. I mean, given a choice between saving my own life or saving my daughter's, I know which life I'm going to save. I'm going to make sure she's safe. I mean, and it's what it's what we all do. It's it's what human beings do. It's what the health service. It's what the government does every single day. They choose between lives. People say you can't put a cost on a life. Oh, that's exactly what NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, does. They're, I think it's about £230,000 is a max they'll pay for any life-saving drug. Um, each one of those COVID deaths has cost us, I don't know, probably about a billion, as far as I can tell, doing the math. Um, but but this, is, this is the thing. is it, it, We are not, for the next five years, going to have um, newsreaders on the BBC and Sky and ITV every night at six o'clock saying, and now the latest deaths from heart disease and cancer uh, as a result of the lockdown in 2020. We're not going to see those figures. They're going to be hidden. They're going to be wrapped up in all the other you know, 16, 1700 deaths every single day. Um, it's not the same as another 34 people have died of COVID. It, it's just not going to be noticed. It's going to be written off. And it's only silly wonks like me who are going to look at those graphs that looks at five year averages and say, hold on a minute. Um, we didn't actually see excess deaths in 2020, but my God, we're going to see them for the next few years. And they're just not going to be on the front page. I mean, it's very, very upsetting what, what we're talking about. But we've, we've been focusing a lot on physical health. We haven't really discussed mental health. I remember reading in a report from the Oslo National Statistics that said that the rates of depression literally doubled over lockdown. Yeah. And, it's, and that is, you know, I think that's the very tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I, mean, I genuinely am of the view that we, I know we've gone from a point where people didn't talk about mental health at all to talking <laughs> about and whilst also saying we should talk about mental health. I think can't get it off my TV screen or my radio. Um, I'm I'm largely of the view that, that an awful lot of the normal human emotions, um, sadness, grief, mm. um, um you know, um, anxiety, that these should not be classed as mental health problems. If they are appropriate to the scenario, if you've been locked in your home on your own without a job, without being able to see your family members for a couple of months, um, the appropriate emotion, I think, would be uh, sadness and anxiety and fear and depression. Mm. I don't think that's necessarily a mental health problem. I think that's you being sane, frankly. Mm. But no doubt at all, London Ambulance Service, uh, I think they were saying something in the region of 60% extra call-outs to either suicides or attempted suicides uh, over the lockdown period. I think it's been absolutely devastating. And I think particularly for younger people, I think the, the interesting thing is that we were all worried about older people, not just for keeping them physically alive because of the risk to them from COVID early on, but also the idea we knew, you know, we knew there were all these elderly people living alone. Um, and I, I'm sure you, like I did, you know, I've got neighbours 
um, who I just, you know, I, I knocked on the door, I sent emails and foot calls in, just said, just want to check you're okay, anything you need from the supermarket, give me a call if there's anything you need, you know, my, my husband's, you know, you can come and, you know, lift things for you, anything you need, let us know. And I've got an elderly aunt in a care home and, and, and other friends in their 70s, regular calls to just check they're okay, you know, and, um, and, and like, but I think everyone did forget about young people. I think I think people forgot how many young people live in bedsits or flat shares with complete strangers um, for, for you know for, for years and years on end. A lot of them in low paid jobs, which suddenly disappeared. Uh, and, you know, no money, no outdoor space, um, no family support unit, and and I think that has taken a terrible toll on people's mental health. Uh, Julia, you listed your uh, you had your list of appropriate emotions. There was one of them which was missing, which is anger. Oh, and, and I wonder whether you feel that you know if we look at what happened during the first lockdown, obviously the killing of George Floyd and the explosion of protests as a result of that, uh, and all of the stuff. You know, I've talked about it when you had me on your show. But but do you think we are going to see as a result of this, particularly if it lasts beyond the second of December? People stuck in their homes for months on end in winter. It's dark, it's raining, it's depressing, and people increasingly frustrated about the future. We may see, do you feel we will see social unrest of some kind? I'd like to see people getting angry. I don't want to see more. <laughs> but I think, again, as you say, anger would be an appropriate response to mm. that. And, and again, I, you know, it's not just that it's not, you know, it's not uh, it's not sunny and nice and, and relaxed anymore. People are now beginning to feel the sort of, hold on a minute, have I? Have I got a job to go back to? Mm. Uh, am I going to be able to get a job in the next few years? I think the real concerns have, have come in and more doubts of, uh, about whether or this, this lockdown actually you know, would work and save lives. So, you know, there may be a sacrifice, as we had in March and April, but we thought, you know, that's a sacrifice to save hundreds of thousands of lives. That that makes sense. If it's not going to save lives and may cost lives, then you're sacrificing uh, for nothing, and and that's a different issue. Also, I mean, on a purely clear note, you know, I think there's there's not that much more to watch on Netflix. Um, I've seen all my <laughs> Netflix. I've seen, there's not a cupboard or a drawer, or a bit of paperwork in my home that has not been sorted out. I don't need to do any more of that. I think people are going to start saying, "Hold on a minute, now what do we do?" Um, yeah, I think people are going to start getting angry, and I think those polls are really going to turn very, very quickly. When people realise that, um, that that this lockdown, you know, they have, is not is not what they thought it would be, and phrases like circuit breaker, there's no circuit to break. The virus is going to be sitting there. This is like I'm just like going inside and locking your door, just sitting there, and then coming out a month later and going, ta-da! Well, the monsters are still out there, folks. They haven't gone away. Um, so if you are scared of the virus, um, and then then you know you, you, that that fear shouldn't shouldn't uh, abate while you're on lockdown. Um, I, I I would I would like there to be more um, public protest, but the important thing is it does need to be it needs to be within the law. Um, and and what you don't want is the and I've not attended any protest marches because I I, I can't trust that they're not going to turn violent. Mm. I, I don't want to be at the same protest march as someone like David Icke or people shouting, oh, it's Russia or it's a hoax. It's not a hoax. It's, it's a real virus. It kills real people. Um, and we do need to be worried and concerned about it. I, I wash my hands. I do the social distancing. I get it all. I do get it. Um, but but I, I would like it if just a load of other just ordinary thinking people would just look at the evidence, look at the actual evidence. It's all available online. Don't trust the 
the Russian bots on Twitter or anything like that, but the actual evidence from from the official data and and can see that this this is this is a travesty. This lockdown, it's a travesty. And we talk a lot about the polls about people being in favour of lockdown. But I put this question to you: the polls they weren't particularly accurate with Brexit. They weren't particularly accurate of the last two general elections, and they certainly weren't accurate with the American election. Are these ones accurate? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, I, I do ask around, I, everyone I know, I would say, who do you know who supports the second lockdown? Because so many people apparently do. Um, and I know I know one couple who do, but there are a couple who, frankly, even the rule of six wouldn't bother them. They don't go out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I mean, I don't go to the pub after 10 o'clock very often because I get up for work at 4.40. I'm, but I'd like the pub to be open for other people. Um I, I think it's strange how many people are quite happy to take away other people's freedoms, ones that they don't use, and say, well, this doesn't matter. And again, it's this idea, isn't it, that, oh, well, you know, what your right to have a pint of 10.15 at night, it doesn't override the right of granny to live, which is a nonsense thing to say, utterly meaningless. Um, but but also, it's not. It's about the right of the person pulling the pint to still have a job and pay their rent the next day. I mean, it's more, more significant than that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think... It, as we know with polling, you can get a 70% majority for anything if you ask it the right way. Um, mm. and, 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 and if you if the first if the four questions you ask before the do you support lockdown are about you know, losing your job, you know, are you willing? Are you willing to have a lockdown if it meant that you and your friends and family are highly likely to lose your job? And even if you don't, that you will be paying much higher taxes for years to come to pay for all those who've lost their jobs and the furlough schemes and everything. And it may not save a single life. Do you now support lockdown? I don't think you get to 70% very quickly. Mm. And also the other thing there is that there seems to be quite a significant inconsistency between the number of people who apparently support lockdown and then equally the number of people who say that they don't comply with lockdown themselves. So <laughs> there's a big gap. Oh, no, but that, oh, no, that is oh, it's perfectly consistent because everyone else is irresponsible. But what mm. you're doing is very sensible. <laughs> yeah, well, I couldn't agree with you more, Julia. I am indeed very sensible. It's no risk for me to see my brother or, or my, my my best friend, obviously because we're being sensible. Those other people over there, they're granny killers. And and people people ascribe, you know, negative emotions to about other people breaking exactly the same rules they're breaking. I can honestly tell you, I other than this couple I'm thinking of, I don't know anybody anybody at all who is sticking to the letter of the rules currently and i mean that from tier one to tier two three and and the lockdown no, not a single person well there you go julie the police now know who to arrest uh, all, of my friends, yeah. all of you and your friends that's exactly it i didn't say you... i was <laughs> I, I have the misfortune of being enough above the parapet that I've got to stick to the letter. Mm. That, that's fair enough. Julia, listen, uh, we know you've been broadcasting for about six hours straight uh, today. Uh, thank you. you so much. Shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. We'd love to have you back uh, when all this craziness is over in the studio and we can chat about some other, other more interesting things. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on. And we've got one more question for you. Which is, what is the one thing that we're not talking about, but we really should be? Oh, God. What? Sh- <laughs> oh, you know, and I, I, I genuinely, I, I was thinking it's all the things that we've been talking about. It's yeah. about like the jobs that are going to be lost and the reality. Um, the one thing people should be talking about more is is 
is mass testing the answer? Everyone thinks that test and trace is the answer. Is mass testing the answer? If you've got a test that's not actually very accurate, is actually mass testing going to create more of a problem than a solution? That, I think, is the next thing we should be talking about. Fantastic. Well, before you go, Julia, tell people where they can follow you and watch uh, the show that you host. Yeah, well, I'm hosting The Breakfast Show on Talk Radio. We're on DAB Plus on our app uh, and uh, online. We live stream, actually, um, uh, through uh, on, on video. Most of my interviews are on uh, are on video, so it's, it's almost like watching a TV show. It's all rather, it's all rather glitzy and glamorous. They maybe put lipstick on and everything. In the morning. <laughs> 6.30 a.m. to 10 a.m. every weekday, and I mean every weekday. Um, and also you can follow me on Twitter at JuliaHB1. I think I'm on Instagram as well, but frankly, I never get around to posting on there except when i'm on holiday uh, so uh but yeah twitter is where you'll mostly find me fantastic julia thank you so much once again for coming on and thank you for watching and listening we will see you very soon with another episode or a live stream all of them go out 7 p.m uk time take care and see you soon guys Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.